What is, do you think, the very most famous Bible verse in all the world? John 3.16. Someone got it right away. People used to hold it up at sporting events, right? Hang banners on the freeway. I think you can still see a a couple of billboards in the Central Valley with John 3.16 on it. And we know uh, most of us probably have that verse memorized, not necessarily because we worked really hard to memorize it, but because we heard it so often growing up or at other points in our life. So let's, let's say it together. If you know it, let's say it together. If you don't know it, just mouth along and no one will know, all right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All right, very good. Now, the reason that people, this is such a famous Bible verse, is because in a lot of ways it encapsulates Christianity in one sentence. But if you've been paying attention, there's actually a lot in that sentence that needs to be unpacked. And here's what I want to ask you this morning. Because I think the key to John 3.16 is, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Because that's the promise. right? That's the reward. That's what we're trying to grab onto. And what does eternal life actually mean? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How would we describe it from here? How will we describe it in eternity? What actually is eternal life? There's been a lot of confusion, I think, both inside and especially outside the church, about what we are looking forward to as Christians. And I think that's actually a problem for us. Because how will we get where we are going if we don't know where or what it is? How will we cooperate with what God is doing today if we don't know where he's taking us tomorrow? And of course, I don't mean necessarily where will I be actually tomorrow so much as what is the future about? What does God's future look like? What, after all, is eternal life? And I think that's really the key to the question that Paul is trying to answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in this passage that Ray just read for us this morning. You notice it starts with a question. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And we start to understand the spirit of the question when we read the beginning of Paul's response. Paul is never one to pull punches. Paul always tells it to you straight, and he says, How foolish! How foolish. See, the question was being asked in Corinth, and that's ridiculous. What you are describing, Paul, is dumb. How possibly can the dead be raised? What kind of body will dead people have? I want to imagine, I want to ask you to imagine with me just for a moment this morning uh, that you have never heard of the resurrection of Jesus Christ before. And you live in a culture that values spiritual stuff over physical stuff, much like, frankly, our culture does. We have a tendency to think that physical things are inferior to spiritual things. Even if we don't really believe in spiritual things, we have this sense of if only there were spiritual sorts of things out there, life would be better. 
And so when Paul starts talking to people about your body will be raised up to life again, everyone says, I don't know if I want that. And how would that even work in the first place? Now, they didn't have these in the first century, but we have way too many of them in the 21st century. I think it would be helpful to think of zombie movies at this point. Zombie movies. Tell me. Do the characters in zombie movies, are they like, please bite me because I really want to be a zombie? No. Zombies are half alive, half dead people. They come up out of the ground and they're already decomposing. No one wants to be a zombie. I apologize for getting graphic this morning. And that's what a lot of people were thinking when Paul said, you are going to be resurrected, raised to new life. Not just to a spiritual existence, but your body itself will be raised. And they were thinking in the first century equivalent, I don't want to be a zombie. But they weren't just thinking, I don't want to be a zombie. They were thinking, this life is hard. And I don't want this life again. What if we take that perspective back to John 3.16? God so loved the world, you know, whoever believes in his son shall have eternal life, life that lasts forever. Do you want this life forever? I think if we think about it, we don't. This life is full of COVID at the moment. And despite all of the assurance, all of the things that we hear that these times are unprecedented, they are not These times are more the rule than they are the exception. Just ask people who lived in Europe in the medieval era. The bubonic plague went on for centuries. Centuries. Do you want centuries of COVID? Do you want centuries of struggling to make ends meet because of a lack of economic opportunity or economic oppression? Do you notice the cycles in world history? No culture, no society gets to a pinnacle and stays there. Every society comes up to a, a time of greatness, if they even make it that far, and then they come back down. They fall back to earth, so to speak. Every society since the world began. And we should be looking at this and thinking, we can't do things the same way anymore. We need a new way, not a new political ideology, because we've tried them all, folks. We've tried them all. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Babylon Bee article that said, you know, socialist wishes there was some example of, of socialism and communism in the past that we could study to see how it works or if it would work. We forget we've tried so many things in the past. We've tried the philosopher king with Plato and Aristotle. We tried that Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome for a period of time, was a philosopher king, and frankly, not everyone was doing well under him. We've tried democracy, but you know the problem with democracy? It's majority rule, and the majority is not always right. Have you noticed that? When you wanted to go and and go off with your friends and do something, and your parents said to you, no, you can't do that, and you said back, well, everyone else is doing it, and what did they tell you? If everyone else was going to jump off a bridge, would you do it too? Because the majority is not always right. I, 
Listen, I'm not here saying down with democracy. I'm just here saying that's not the ultimate solution. We've tried it. And there are fatal flaws in it. I hope there are fewer than in the other systems that we've tried before. But it can't answer our deepest needs. We've tried relationships. We've tried family. Family is such a wonderful gift and blessing, which is why it hurts so badly when it goes wrong. And I'd venture a guess that every single person in here has experienced family going wrong. We need a new solution. We need a new type of life. Not the old one forever or the old one again. There's something attractive about some of the other answers to, well, how do we fix what's gone wrong in our world? There are the Eastern answers of reincarnation, right? Well, we'll just keep trying until we get it right. Folks, there's no guarantee we'll ever get it right, and history seems to point to the fact that we won't. That's what we've just been talking about. That's not a solution. Others offer a solution of, well, maybe we'll get somewhere where everyone just feels really good all the time. And we substitute our, our most pleasurable human experiences for a vision of heaven, don't we? I can think of a, a couple right off the bat where, since their kids press, and it's a little hard to figure out how to phrase this, but you know, think of that thing that's on TV all the time and in movies, especially on HBO, uh, and you see it and you think that is one of the best human experiences I've ever, I've ever had and I could possibly hope to have. Maybe eternity is just about doing that forever. And it's not. Our future can't just be about pleasure. There has to be more to it than that because pleasure without purpose is without meaning and is ultimately empty. Because we know people who are doing some of these things all the time, pursuing pleasure all of the time, and yet never pleased. So what is it that Christianity proposes that eternal life is all about? It's not just about length. It's about quality. And the, an eternal quality, an infinite quality, can be guaranteed only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's why. 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 42 and 40, uh, to 44, give us four explanations of what the resurrection looks like in us in the future. So the first thing we need to understand comes right after this. It's the last part of what Ray read for us just a moment ago. It says, uh, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. We are living the life of the first Adam right now, the life that is broken and marred by sin and by evil, the life where nothing ends up working in the way that we want it to or we think it should at the end. Not because there's nothing good in the world, but because what's broken in us always breaks the world around us. It may be good for a while, but it is never good forever. But there is a second Adam. And the reference here, of course, is to Jesus Christ. And it says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so in verses 42 to 44, Paul describes for us what the first Adam is like and then what the resurrection, what the second Adam 
is like. It says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. So first we're going to answer the zombie question, right? Do I want my body dragged up out of the ground in its decaying, moldering state again? The answer, of course, is no. We do not want to be zombie people. We want to be real, holy, living people, full-life people. But this passage points us to another truth. See, the first Adam, that first body was sown perishable. It was always going to die. Not only that, but the Greek word here for perishable has the connotation of decomposing, decaying, being corrupted. See, it's not just at the end that our bodies are dying, is it? It's all throughout our lives. It's not just old people at the end of their life who get cancer. It's also infants. It's not just people doing crazy stunts, you know, out uh, in their 30s and 40s or 20s or whatever it is, hang gliding or base jumping or something else that end up dying of trauma, is it? It's children crossing the street. We are all subject in the first body to our bodies slowly falling apart or even quickly ending. That's what life is like. But that's not what the resurrection life is like. Adam's body is corruptible, but Christ's resurrected body is incorruptible in every way. It doesn't begin to disintegrate. It doesn't start to fall apart. As a matter of fact, one of the most interesting things to me about Jesus' body is that when he appears, first of all, the disciples, they're all camping out in locked rooms because their leader has just been killed and they're thinking, we might be next. So they're hiding in the safest places that they could find. Rooms with doors that lock and no windows. It is dark, it is dank, and they are frightened. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. In the middle of it, because his body isn't bound by the same rules anymore. But not only that, the disciples look at him and they think, he must be a ghost, because they know dead people don't come back to life. He must be a ghost, they say. And so Jesus says, Come and touch my body. But not only that, he says, Feel the holes in my hands, see the holes in my legs, put your hand in my side. Those were marks of death on him. But now they don't hurt him any longer because his body is not subject to death. His body is animated by a different kind of life and it will never fall apart again. See, the resurrection body is different than this body. This body falls apart. The resurrection body stays together. He says the second thing, I, the, de- the body that is sown is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. This one is maybe a little bit harder for us in the West uh, to get. But in the first century, the people lived in an honor-shame culture. The most important things that you could gain or lose in life were your reputation and your family's reputation. And what Paul is telling us is that we were born with a bad reputation. Why? We haven't done anything. Well, we belong to a family. 
with a bad reputation. We are children of Adam. We bear his image. His mistakes are counted as our mistakes. Not only are his mistakes counted as our mistakes, but we repeat his mistakes. We earn the likeness with the way that we live. See, our first body is sown in dishonor and in shame. Some of us have experienced this in our lives. Maybe it is for a family reason. Maybe we were born in a bad part of town and we still live there and we're afraid to tell people where we're from because it feels like dishonor and it feels like shame. Maybe we've done some things in our lives, we've broken some relationships, and whether or not it was our fault, people think badly of us because of that. We are sown in dishonor. We live in dishonor. But the new body is not like that. The new life is not like that. There's no more dishonor attached to it because we are raised like Jesus was raised. We are raised because Jesus was raised. And all of his shame turned to glory. That's the other thing about the marks in his hands and in his feet and in his side is that even as he stands in heaven with the Father in these days, he continues to bear those marks. The book of Revelation says at one point, uh, when they're talking about opening the scroll of history, I just read this, I think, on Good Friday. There's only one person worthy to bring about all that God has planned for the world. And an angel says to the person having the vision, to John having the vision, don't be sad, don't be sorry. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and he can carry out God's purposes to the end. And John says, he's looking around. Where is this lion of the tribe of Judah? And he sees a lamb that looks like it was slain. That is the glorious one. Not the one who killed everybody, who everyone thought well of. Not the one who appeared to have all the power. Not the one who had all the money, but the one who gave up his life who accepted the shame that everyone else wanted to pour out on him so he could empty their shame and trade it for glory. That's what he's done for us. And now our suffering is transformed as well. It's not that suffering stops hurting. It's not that suffering is now a good thing in the world. It's that God turns it to good in our lives. So that now when we suffer, we say, Jesus suffered. And God turned his suffering into glory. And Jesus said that everything that belongs to him is going to belong to me. I am going to have his type of body. I will be raised like Jesus Christ. And God will turn my suffering into glory. My shame into glory. So the body is sown perishable but raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor but raised in glory. And then it is... Sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. Sown in weakness, but raised in power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, the same book that Paul is writing, he says this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Because dying on a cross is weakness in the eyes of the world. Rome, the the cross was literally a symbol of Rome's triumph over whoever was on the cross. But the power of obedience and love overcomes it. 
Because being overcome by those who choose power over, humi- uh, over humility is not being overcome at all. And that's why Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The thing that the powerful seek to dominate and control and take advantage of. Folks, those with worldly power are deceived. God has the last word. Let's not seek worldly power then. As if that could set the world to rights. We've been doing that for all of human history. I need power so I can make it right. Let's instead choose the way of Jesus. Because on Easter Sunday, we remember that weakness triumphed over power. But more than that, let's remember that the body that's sown in weakness is unable to do the things that it ought. Unable to keep the law. Unable to glorify God. Again, Paul's famous passage in Romans 7. I don't understand what I do. What I do is not the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. I keep on doing that. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and he condemned sin in the flesh. And now the righteous requirement of the law is fully met in us who trust in Jesus Christ, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's again out of Romans 8. We have new power as Christ followers through the Holy Spirit to be law keepers. Not only that, but one day we will have a body where it won't be a debate anymore. We will be raised to a new kind of life where it won't be a temptation anymore. That way of the world will be done with. The body is sown in weakness in Adam, but raised in power in Jesus Christ. And finally, the body is sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. In some ways, that's maybe the most confusing statement of all. But what it means is that the animating principle of our bodies is no longer the spirit of this world. No longer what we have perceived as our natural impulses and desires. Like in the children's message this morning, you remember? Not everything that's naturally in our hearts is already good. We experience this on a daily basis. Or at least I do. Maybe you're better than me. But somebody will do something wrong and either will be offended by it, even if it doesn't directly impact us, or it will impact us. Someone has sinned against us. And what's our first impulse? It's, you know, bam! I'm going to get you right back. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think of you and everything that you've done. But Jesus reserved that only for the people who thought they had it all figured out and were leading others to that. Because there was nothing left for him to say. It wasn't because Jesus was saying, you know, these people are just really bad and I need to to just let them have it because I'm so angry. It's because the only way I've got left to reach you anymore is with the language of, you know, woe to you. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, in one of the Gospels, he stands over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long have I longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't listen. Woe, woe to you. Because he saw the future that was coming. 
We need a new body with new impulses that are trustworthy, that take us to the right place, that know how to respond with grace and generosity and with truth. It's funny, being a parent, that's what I find myself telling my children most often. If there's an argument or something, how can we be generous here? How can we love each other here? How can we train our hearts out of the old way, out of Adam's way, and into Christ's? I love uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. Many people do, so I'm not very original. But uh, the last book is called The Last Battle. It's pretty obvious it's the last book with a title like that. And at the end of The Last Battle, there's a picture of the end of Narnia as it was and the beginning of Narnia as it was always meant to be. Things are at a crisis in Narnia. Evil people have taken it over, and there doesn't seem any hope that good will win it back. And the main characters who have been fighting for the good of Narnia are thrown into a stable where there are soldiers waiting to kill them. And yet when they find themselves in the stable, they find themselves transported to an entirely different sort of place. It's a land full of light where the stable was dark. It's a land that is full of growing things, green things, where Narnia was being ruined and destroyed. There are no parallels to our world in that, are there? It's a land where their very bodies are different. It's interesting. One of the characters said, how can this all be contained within a stable And there's rather a telling remark where one of the characters says, well, once long ago in our own world, in this world, a stable also contained something that was bigger than the whole world. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a baby. See, Narnia, the original Narnia, was only a pale shadow of the Narnia that was to come. And the characters struggle to describe it, as of course they would, because the Bible struggles to describe it. That's why the book of Revelation is so dang hard. Did you ever notice that? It's full of symbolism because you can't describe it with just words. It needs pictures. And even those pictures aren't really adequate. It is so much bigger. It is so much better, the world that God is making. But here's my favorite part. Aslan, of course, appears, and he invites all of the people, everyone who's come into the new Narnia, the resurrected Narnia, come further up and further in. And everyone gets all excited, and they say some stuff, and then they start to run. I used to have these dreams, I don't know about you, where I would run, and it would feel almost like I was flying. I remember when I was little, I would feel like that when I was running. It's like, I just feel like I'm going so fast that I'm going to take off. My body is working so well that it feels like I could go forever. I couldn't. I never did very well on the mile run in PE. But I hadn't had one of those dreams in a long time. It was remarkable to me because, you know, I've got this back problem. I can't run at all in these days. How many of you are in the same sort of position? Your body has broken down to the point where the things that you used to be able to do, you can't really do so much anymore. If you're a physical therapist in here, I'm not trying to get you out of a job or anything like that. 
But our bodies, they just break down. They don't work the way that they're supposed to work anymore. And this picture of Narnia, people, whether they were young or whether they were old, whether they were a donkey that runs awkwardly or a unicorn, in the case of Narnia, that gallops faster than you can possibly imagine, they started to run. And they ran faster. And they ran faster. And they ran faster until the scenery was whipping by them almost too fast to be seen. And they never got tired. And they never got hot. And they never ran out of breath. And my favorite scene is they get to a, a place in Narnia where the only way is up. There's a waterfall and a cliff. And they get into the water. And they're so enthralled with where they're going in Narnia that they start swimming. And I think the dogs or somebody are ahead of everyone else and they're so excited that they start swimming their way up the waterfall because with their bodies, their new resurrection bodies, what was never possible in our world has become possible for them. Now, I don't know if, uh, if the resurrection will consist of dogs swimming up waterfalls, but that's not the point. The point is that feeling that we are no longer limited by death, no longer limited by dishonor, no longer limited by weakness. We have spirit-animated bodies in the resurrection. And Christianity is different in the sense that it's only in Christianity that this is a testable theory. Where other faiths rely on visions or uh, thoughtful musings of people, Christianity relies on Easter Sunday and what the disciples saw or didn't see. Let me give you just one more word from that before I'm done up here. If you noticed when Ray was reading for us the story of the resurrection from the Gospel of Luke, first of all, Luke begins his Gospel by saying, uh, you know, everyone's heard something about Jesus, but, and he's writing to a, someone named Theophilus, but most excellent Theophilus, I thought it would be good for me to put together an orderly account that I have carefully researched of the things that have happened so that you may be sure of them. Luke said, my intention is to write a book of history, and it jives with what we know of ancient historiography. He was operating within that tradition. But not only this, that beginning of the resurrection story, who found the empty tomb? Anyone remember? The women. The women. You know why that's important? In the first century, women were not allowed to testify in court because their testimony was deemed too unreliable. We don't believe that here, by the way. <laughs> So why would Luke choose to have the empty tomb being found by a group of women if he made it up? See, the most likely explanation is that it was true. Obviously, uh, if you're sitting in here and you're a skeptic this morning, uh, one example, one piece of evidence may most likely won't change your mind. If it does, I'm not stopping you, just so it's clear. But it's just one example of many. Christianity has always been a faith, Judaism for that matter, has always been a faith that asks, did it happen or not? Because that's what defines who and what.
we are. Brothers and sisters, the evidence points to the fact that Jesus really rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then the rest of this begins to make sense.